Welcome to the Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey. Here's your host, Mark Seelis. So as a company, we, we've got 50,000 people. Why should a large company like ANZ or anybody else for that matter, why should they care about the mindset of their people and their employees? Well, one reason is we have um, found in our research that um, when people perceive that they're in a growth mindset company, they feel more empowered to innovate and change. They feel like they can collaborate instead of looking like the big genius superstar all the time. And um, uh, so it, it creates a culture of, of wanting to grow and also a feeling that you have permission to grow. If you take on a risk and it doesn't quite work out, you believe the company has your back. So it's creating a setting of what you would call agility, ready to be out of your comfort zone, ready to change, which is, as we know, what the world We just heard the clip from an interview with Professor Carol Dweck by NAZ Newsroom talking about the importance of mindset when dealing with growth. One of the first things we might come across when reading about Agile methods and Agile enterprise transformations are statements like focus on individuals and interactions, not processes and tools, have constant customer engagement, not rigid contracts, deliver working solutions, not excessive documentation, or value flexibility over concrete plans. All of these dimensions are very valid, and even if it's hard to implement them in all the business areas, there is intrinsic value in each of them. Very often I hear about more companies shifting into trying to become an agile enterprise. Still, very few of them are tackling the transformation challenge, keeping in mind the cultural and mindset aspects as well. A company in Finland, experts in Agile Enterprise called Engine Room 7, has created a simple method based on seven elements to self-assess which level of Agile maturity your company has. To use this method, count one point if the answer to the next questions is never, three for sometimes, and five points for most of the times. Number one, do we have a strong sense of purpose and a strategic direction? Number two, do we use a lean approach and early validation engaging the customer? Number three, is there a customer focus in everything we do? Number four, do we utilize cross-functional teams to maximize value and outputs to ensure quality delivery? Number five, are we experiencing a growth mindset and high performance in all the teams? Number six, do we practice agile decision-making close to the customer? And the last one, number seven, do we have a strong buy-in to start the Agile engine? Sum up all the points. When you gather a score over 30, you'll know that your company has a solid base to start your Agile journey. The end result will be not only an enterprise that develops proactive solutions to face strategic and operational challenges, but as well creates excellent and desirable places to work. This is Mark Siles speaking. Welcome back to our show. To talk about Agile as a catalyst for growth, we have today with us William Roden. William 
is an enterprise transformation consultant leading agile initiatives in different environments as American multinational corporations and telecommunication companies. In between, he works with executive teams to assess their organizations and roadmap their agile journeys. Previously, William co-founded and was the chief technology officer of an agile software company that developed an advanced traffic management system that, prior to and alongside Google Maps, served the San Francisco Bay Area for 15 years. William's approach is based upon a synthesis of research and experience with adult development, organization development and leadership. William, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's great to have you with us today, but before we start the interview, let me ask you another typical question I like to ask to all my guests. Tell me, what are you passionate about? I think of passion as the intersection of what I love and what I'm good at, uh, and those mm -hmm. circles don't completely overlap. Um, I, I think at that intersection actually is learning. Um, I'm a lifelong learner. I am constantly um, teaching myself new things. Um, uh, adult developmental psychology is one of the ones that I've been studying recently. Related to my profession in coaching and consulting, I especially like fostering teams uh, and mentoring and developing other coaches. So those are areas that are uh, close to passion. If I just look at what I what I love um, and set aside whether or not I'm any good at it, you know, what I have an amateur appreciation uh, of, then there's a uh, there's a wide range of things. Uh, I like architecture, language, uh, mysticism, nature, people philosophy, reading, religion, cross-cultural travel, and writing. Um, for example, my husband and I have traveled to 17 countries together, which probably wow. doesn't sound like much to someone like you from Europe, but, uh, but it seems rare for citizens of the United States. Uh, and so uh, on the theme of architecture, we've, we've seen the Alhambra, Chichen Itza, uh, the Taj Mahal, and, and a variety of forest landscapes parks and wildlife uh, i think it'd be cool to be having this conversation by your lake there in finland instead of over zoom for our listeners that are following this podcast you know at the moment i'm sitting down in a nice lake in finland while william is in the u.s so uh, the views are a bit different but at the same time the, you know that is the beauty of nowadays technology and keeping agile as well right to be able to have this conversation while both are on the move in a, such a separate and different countries. And, you know, something I'm curious about after you said all this range of interest and range of different kind of passions and things that you like to experience, uh, I'm wondering, how did you become interested about Agile and Agile methodologies? Right, well, one of the things that I've been interested in for a long time is computer programming. Actually, that's been a hobby of mine since 1980, um, although it wasn't until the 1990s uh, that I actually started developing software. Um, I was a civil engineer and uh, started developing software for civil engineering applications. And so in 1999, Kent Beck's Extreme Programming Explained came out uh, and it made a lot of sense to me. So uh, I got into Agile before it was Agile. It was Extreme Programming at the time, or at least part of it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and my coworker and future business partner sent a random inner office email message And so I dropped a copy of Kent Beck's Extreme Programming Explained on his desk, and that's how we got into Agile software development. At that stage, what did capture your attention from that methodology you are describing? 
Yeah, what captured my attention was actually the values. So we have been doing consulting engineering uh, mm -hmm. and urban planning, and there's a, a lot of value on collaboration in that, in involving mm -hmm. stakeholders. And in order to do that, you just sort of naturally do that iteratively and incrementally, where you show initial ideas and then come back with a more refined version. And um, so the, the way that we did traffic engineering and traffic planning was actually very iterative and incremental with lots okay. of collaboration with stakeholders. And so extreme programming seemed like the computer science analog of that approach. That sounds interesting, especially when thinking how much literature, articles and buzz has been going around during the last weeks and months about Agile and, and this bird that is passing around. So our listeners also will hear the nature sometimes gives us some nice surprises with some nice birds flying over us. So let's be Agile about adapting to the environment as well. But yeah, just going back to my point, we have been hearing a lot about Agile in different media, still the point maybe that it has even become a bit of a buzzword. To help our audience clarify what we are actually talking about, let's start from the other side. And can you let us know or tell us what is not agile? Right. I had a conversation with a managing director about this. Um, we were working together on a program that had some cultural challenges, and I was suggesting a way we could approach the stakeholders. And he replied that uh, the problems that we were having with the stakeholders had nothing to do with delivery methodologies. And so I took the time to explain that I don't see Agile as a delivery methodology. Um, I, th I think that cultural change is always the principal issue whenever you're working within an organization. Exactly. There are some organizations that are culturally ready for Agile, and so it's just kind of a no-brainer, but those are, aren't the ones that hire a consultant like me. So the ones I see generally have a cultural challenge. And so I, when I lead an Agile transformation, I think of it actually as organizational development. Um, the specific steps of doing an Agile development are actually only a small part of what Agile coaches call a mindset shift. So mm -hmm. it's not just the steps, um, it's the, you know, the benefits come from the practices, uh, but we pick the right practices based on principles and values that are part of an overall mindset. Principles and values. One of the first things that one encounters when searching information about Agile is actually the Agile Manifesto. But what do they actually mean? How would you describe those principles and values using your own words? Right. Uh, I actually also, uh, I actually borrow Michael Spade's words um, and some, uh, mm -hmm. some words from the research there. I think Agile values as uh, in a tier in a set of tiers, uh, Michael Spade of Agile Consulting Institute showed me that there's a progression there. So people very often, like we were just discussing, think of Agile as a methodology, a delivery methodology. And so that's a very process-centric perspective. But as they develop their perspective on Agile, um, begins to embrace its values. And the first value that I think makes the most sense to people is to be goal-centric. That's, I think, the underlying meaning of working software over compre comprehensive documentation. Um, okay. The next... Uh, the next more complex uh, piece of the Agile values I would call customer-centric or collaboration because they've got the two values, individuals and interactions over processes and tools and customer collaboration over contract negotiation. So this idea that not only are we going to be goal-centric, but we're going to be collaborative in the way we approach it. 
And then finally, there's um, an even harder element of it, an even more challenging element of the values, which is responding to change over following a plan. And so I see that as being uh, evolutionary or more organizational centric or even society centric when we see that the market might introduce a need for a change into our software development. Especially the last one you mentioned about responding to change rather than just sticking to the plan. That skill or that ability to adapt as new learnings and new insights come up, it's relevant. Uh, how a company can keep more flexible on that initial planning phase, or would you disagree? You know, let's just start from the beginning. Would you agree that an initial plan, it is needed, but then it's all about the flexibility towards that plan that will make the difference between failure or success? Yeah, absolutely. It's not that there isn't any planning in Agile. It's that the planning is distributed across the course of whatever it is you're trying to do instead of being concentrated in the early phases when you know the least. So the idea is that we can plan a small increment, do that increment, learn from it, um, perhaps have new information, and now we have more information for the next part of the plan. So absolutely mm -hmm. planning is part of Agile. And so companies whose development process is chaotic. Um, I've mm -hmm. seen them sometimes call themselves agile simply because they <laughs> seem not to have as much regular planning. Uh, but I don't. Uh, I think that's a little bit of what Ken Wilber would call a pre-trans fallacy where what things look like before you even adopt a process and what things look like when your process and mature have superficial similarities but aren't actually the same. So a, a mature process has planning in it but then adapts that planning to new information at regular in increments rather than sort of holding to the plan and saying, hey, we're deviating from the initial budget and schedule and so something must be wrong. I think that especially the value comes when you put those elements you were mentioning all together and then we can see what happens in a company when we experience that level of maturity. Which are the things that we're going to see? Which are the things that will let us know that actually we are in front of a mature, agile enterprise? A consultant of mine taught me the appropriate response when going into a client because often we'll be hired to help the client become more agile. And the folk that we initially work with will tell us, well, we're already agile. And the graceful response that I learned to that is, uh, great, show me. Uh, because you can uh, watch and look and listen uh, as you well before before we uh, before the current situation as you wander the halls of the office you could observe the kinds of things that you would expect in an agile organization not that the not that those things themselves you know make agile but they are there are some pretty clear indicators if you're wandering an agile organization um, when you could do that you would see you know, information radiators on the wall because there's this idea that information should be transparent to the teams so that they can organize uh, around that information and make good decisions on the ground as a way of responding to change like we were just talking about. And right. you tend to also hear um, a, a murmur of voices as you walk the halls because people are working together. There's that customer mm -hmm. collaboration and individuals and interactions. And uh, finally, if you stayed around a while, you would see people demonstrate their progress at regular inc increments. So those are pretty clear indicators that are pretty simple to just observe um, in an organization to see if they're really uh, getting the benefits from Agile.
which are then the main factors when we think about the way that you are working with your clients and your approach uh, towards leading these agile transformations? Yeah, well, I take a 80-20 approach to mm-hmm. agile transformation where I try to identify which is the 80% that will most contribute to the success of a transformation and increase the probability that we're going to get results that we want. And so when I look at what contributes to 80% of the successes, the first factor that jumps to mind and is probably 60% of the overall variance is the the sponsor themselves. So I make a priority to work with the sponsor of the transformation and to pair when possible and to also work with uh, leadership profiles of the sponsor and the consultants that are working with them to help them understand how their way of viewing the world and particularly their way of leading is going to impact the cultural change that's involved in an agile transformation. I also think about this organizational development as a process. And so think about what patterns, practices, frameworks, goals would be appropriate to where the client is right at that moment or where my organization is right at that moment. So adapt the frameworks and the even the teaching style to the mm-hmm. organizational culture and structure. I also find it pretty important for there to be executive steering, or actually, I don't even like executive steering. I would say executive action uh, is an important part of uh, reassuring the organization that this isn't just another fad that's been handed out down to the developers, but is actually a set of values that even the executives are adopting. And uh, then the overall, the fourth factor would be that the overall mindset shift requires a lot of coaching. Uh, It's one thing to be trained. This is what Agile is, but it's another thing to be coached as you go through the process. Uh, I Mm -hmm. I think of golf as a good analogy, not that I golf, but I think of it as a good analogy that Mm -hmm. if I thought that I could learn it from a book, uh, that seems mistaken. I would probably want to hire myself a coach to watch my swing and give me pointers. So those are the four factors that I think about when I lead an Agile transformation. Those are the ones that I think are the biggest impact on the probability of success. That's right. And I love that you're mentioning this example because I actually I just learned or just started learning to play golf. I got the green card as a present for my birthday. So two or three weeks ago, I started uh, with the whole process. And of course, it had been with a coach couple together with, uh, you know, all the couple of online trainings and reading books as well and watching videos. And I can see the elements or the parallelism you have been mentioning now about how those play into especially learning and developing a new skill because it's not just about the skill by itself but it's also the mindset you know what do you have in your head and how that's aligned as well with your body skills and we thought those uh, those factors you were mentioning i can see how that plays a big role into becoming or not a good golf player so let's see one year from now uh, when we talk and keep on discussing on this topic i can tell you that my handicap is a bit better <laughs> than, than starting right now uh, one element also that have been mentioning that has taken my attention is when you talk about the self-awareness within the team, you know, and creating this profiling and helping them as well to understand not just themselves better, but also creating this acceptance of others and practices active listening and also helping them be a coaching to create a level of maturity. So this takes us to the point you were referring about the mindset shift. So agile is not just a bunch of tools and techniques. Uh, but it's basically also mindset and a way of thinking. And this topic is affecting how leadership is understood. How is actually Agile bringing more awareness into leadership development? Right. There's, there's a lot there. So let me, let me start with uh, just on-the-ground teams. 
So organizations typically start out with sort of a hierarchical pyramid, top-down command and control. And one mm -hmm. of the first things that Agile does is disrupt the silos that have been built up in this approach um, by putting together a cross-functional team to deliver something. So this, this moves the organization toward a more, um, uh, a less group-centric, you know, my department, your department sort of approach and requires not only for the teams to collaborate, but whatever organizational hierarchy they're part of need to be working together to support the team. And so there are a number of things that at the team level um, discourage the kind of group think and tribalism that some uh, organizations have uh, as they start on this journey. Then the leaders uh, then have a pretty important role in supporting that effectiveness. So, for example, um, I'm a big fan of Jurgen Apollo's Seven Levels of Authority, which is this idea of making it very clear what you're delegating to the team and what you're not. Um, another thing, another key factor that I see in leadership support is supporting blameless retrospectives, uh, giving the team the space to improve their process without needing to identify who's wrong. And so I'm a, a fan of the idea of inspect the process, not the people, or uh, something we use in retrospectives called Norm Kurtz Retrospective Prime Directive, which is a way of framing how the retrospective is done. And so these things, if supported by leadership, work to do what I think Deming suggested in drive out fear. So by, by removing blame, an organization can remove fear. And by removing fear, the organization enables teams to surface problems and solve them more effectively. So we want to create an environment where, we, uh, where it's safe to take smart risks and fail so that mm -hmm. anyone can surface problems at any time, like uh, A3s and fishbone diagrams are good uh, lean techniques we use in this. So uh, one of the initial needs that leaders need to create in the environment for the teams is what I think you would call psychological safety. That's right. What just came into my mind, that term as well, and what you were saying before, like creating a common agenda to start with. So there is like a way to break up those silos by having a common purpose, something. It doesn't mean that 100% of the agenda has to be the same, right? But having 10, 15, 20% of a shared agenda would facilitate that cross-collaboration that breaks up those silos and then that psychological safety so people understand that it's about creating a final result together and learning within the process with this collective learning approach without having to be afraid of uh, reprimands, punishments into the picture. So psychological safety would look it from the outside, meaning like how people support each other, and then via that growth and the level of uh, self-maturity and self-awareness, we can increase that confidence as well. So we have that ability to talk and ask for help when we have those weak moments. So, you know, I know we are talking a lot of complex items, but I see there uh, big elements that teams will gain a lot of uh, impact and performance if they can become more aware about how to enhance those dimensions. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And on the on the team level, we use lots of techniques to encourage collaboration as well. Mm -hmm. um, lots of techniques to make it clear that it's not so important who's wrong. Uh, and so consequently, it's okay to make a, a contrary observation. It's okay to have a different idea. Uh, Agile coaches use lots of decision-making protocols that foster the ability to bring this kind of information forward, even if there's the potential losing face. 
for example, in um, retrospectives, we often do parallel idea generation in um, deciding what to do. We, we use something like Roman voting in uh, planning, in planning process. We use something called uh, fist to five to reveal commitment. These are all ways of beginning to appreciate mm -hmm. people who might have different values from the norm and to make it safe for them to, uh, or different ideas from the norm to make and make it safe for them to bring their ideas forward and uh, not worry about losing face. How would you evaluate then the level of maturity? If you look, if you look at the different stages uh, that an agile leadership team can go through. Right. There is a lot of parallel between the stages in an organization's development and the stages in the leader's development. And in fact, um, Agile coaches will note that Frederick Leloux has suggested that the leader's mindset sort of kept, sets a cap or a maximum on how far the organization can develop. So I look to the research in leadership and adult development to understand what different ways of uh, looking at the world look like. And uh, one, one popular author in that area is Bill Joyner. Uh, and he even has an agile friendly name for his uh, research. He uh, calls it leadership agility. And the, the subtitle there is five levels of mastery for anticipating and initiating change. So it's really about transformation, uh, and, which is how I discovered this research. And he has a five level description there. So there's a there's pre-expert, which actually some of what we've been talking about here. And then uh, his five levels are expert, achiever, catalyst, co-creator, and synergist. But 80% of leaders profile at expert or achiever. So those are really the ones you can think about in terms of mindset. Uh, and that the, you can see organizational parallels in that mindset as well. So for example, a team at an expert mindset will have perhaps moved past the fear uh, of violating group norms that we were talking about earlier, um, but still might focus their attention on local efficiency, still might be a bit perfectionistic. Uh, and so Agile then has technique to call attention to overall effectiveness, to notice that the most effective system process isn't necessarily when each individual process is itemized so that it's not, you know, if you and I are on a team, we're not going to perform best on the team if each of us tries to figure out what would make it easiest and most efficient for us individually. Um, because it might be most efficient for me to put a, push a lot of the work on you, and it might be most efficient for you to put, uh, push a lot of the work on me, but that doesn't make an effective pairing. And so call it moving out of the expert mindset and into an achiever mindset, we're more jointly looking at the goal we're trying to achieve uh, is, a, is an example of uh, looking at how I think about how this research, the leadership development research applies to how agile teams behave, if that makes sense. Can you tell us a bit more as well about the other stages? Sure. The uh, catalyst, co-creator, and synergists are, you know, a small percentage, um, but actually you can see a fair amount of parallels with the uh, progression of agile values that I was mentioning earlier. So an achiever mm -hmm. is when you're having a goal-centric 
perspective on Agile. Uh, what, what can I produce with this? At, at the Catalyst level, there is a uh, collaboration or um, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, a collaboration approach or collaboration perspective on Agile, I guess a customer centric um, would be what, how I would say that. Okay. Uh, at co-creator is when you're beginning to uh, really be able to in the moment respond to change. And so I see that as the evolutionary um, stage of development or this of being able to respond to change or following a plan. Uh, and then and then synergist tends to push up against the bounds of uh, rationality and gets really hard to describe. And that's where my interest in mysticism might come out. So um, uh, that's a pretty, pretty rare in uh, corporate leadership to see that, that perspective. Catalyst and co-creation, I guess that in the way that you have been describing it, requires a big amount of feedback or even feed forwards. Uh, what is the, the relevance of uh, becoming or mastering uh, the art of uh, listening to each other, active listening and receiving and giving feedback? Yeah, I think it's critical. It's, it's key. I mean, fundamentally, if you look at it, agile practices are feedback loops. It's mm -hmm. the application of the scientific me method to social management. So you just you go through iterative cycles of identifying the problem, planning, acting, and then evaluating empirical phenomena, just like you would do in a in scientific investigation. Um, this is the Deming wheel of plan, do, study, act. So if you look, for example, at a scrum team, you plan the sprint, you deliver your potentially shippable software, you demo the results and see if the stakeholders actually like it, and then you retrospect on your process and delivery to try to learn something new. So Agile is, in, uh, is based on uh, this idea of continuous feedback. Uh, you can see this in Kanban as well, where the Kanban team can uh, periodically use lead time and throughput to adjust its work and process limits. So if an organization or leadership is not comfortable with feedback, then the Agile transformation is not going to be very successful. Uh, another way to look at Agile transformation is just you're installing feedback loops in an organization. So it's especially important that leadership be comfortable with it. And if we look at joiners, ways of uh, classifying the perspectives that leaders bring to their leadership. The expert will tend to dismiss feedback mm -hmm. uh, from folk that aren't, that they don't regard as experts in the same field. Whereas an achiever will look at feedback and evaluate whether or not it's useful to uh, help them decide what action will re reach their goals. So there's a progression in the ability to deal with feedback the catalyst leader, since we were talking about that, if then becomes more willing to even question the goal and to begin to look at uh, feedback from areas that might be in their blind spot, might be in their shadow. Uh, so each of these um, stages has a different relationship to feedback. Um, and so increasing maturity strengthens the ability of the organization to have feedback loops because the organization is going to take their cues from the leader and how they take feedback. Especially when thinking on how the team manages conflict as well. I think it makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, any team that has a fear of that conflict and doesn't belong to this psychological 
safe environment, at the end of the day, will avoid going into giving any type of feedback or, or feed forward because just there is no level of comfort within doing so. And the danger I see on that one is that at the end, teams just end up talking about what everybody knows. Right, so the, the common information syndrome. So then what is the value on spending hours talking about what everybody already knows and making easy decisions when nobody dares to bring up those elements which are on these blind spots that you were, that you were just referring and, and talking about. So this sounds to me like not just a critical element, but a, a keystone that we saw having that level of maturity. Basically everything else falls apart. Or let me put it in a different way, as you were saying before, the quality of the final decisions that an executive team can make will be lower, and this will cap the organizational capabilities to reach, you know, to go from good to great, or just to reach to beyond uh, the obvious. Yeah, exactly. Yes, um, in organizations that uh, aren't welcome, that don't welcome feedback. So, an organization where it's not safe to fail, what happens mm -hmm. is, you know, in the trenches. Things happen, but we don't share the momentary trials. Uh, in fact, we tend to shade slightly positively the reports that we give, uh, so that by the time it reaches the executives, if each level, you know, puts a happy face on the information, then executives are no longer getting good information. And so, in order to create an organization that has feedback loops that allow the executives to make good decisions about where the organization is going you've got to have that free flow of information and, and of feedback and as you know the conflict is a natural part of that and especially if you're trying to move an organization from its current culture toward a more agile way of uh, doing and being their conflict is just going to be a natural part of that and so the leading transformation requires um, being open to feedback and uh, being open to increasing awareness of what's going on uh, inside leader of the transformation and inside the various stakeholders. We've got to develop the, uh, an, an empathy for the conflicting stakeholder mm -hmm. interests that are involved whenever you're transforming an organization. And those key moments, going back to conflict, those key moments occur in pivotal conversations. That's right. Like that's where the work of transformation is done. And that's where self-awareness, you know, present-centered awareness is key. And the ability to integrate feedback in the moment, even during a challenging conversation. So mm. even in the process of transformation, this ability to be aware and take in new information is critical. And here, just to make sure that the conversation is about the process, it's about the thing, not about the person. What you were saying before at the beginning of the interview, I think that is something, especially in the most stressing moments, even myself, I found, uh, I found myself in those kind of traps where for a while, like, you know, if I'm tired, I'm stressed, then it's very easy to go to the other side. And that can only be avoided by bringing that element of self-awareness when we notice that, okay, now I see that, you know, that element of, uh, you know, we cannot feel in our body. There is always this certain spot, stomach, chest, wherever that is, the legs starts to increase the heat or the tension. Now I'm, <laughs> I'm taking this one personal. So this self-awareness, either physically or, uh, or either mentally, help us to recognize, uh, or let me put it in a different words, that we cannot avoid, at least from my experience, it's very hard to avoid that the feeling comes 
but it's very easy to become aware of it and stop it before it bursts into something bad or negative. And then at that stage, it's much easier to turn it around and then refocus into the process, focus into the thing, understanding that critique is not about my persona or my way of thinking, but it's more about these other ways, maybe, which, is, which are better to approach this issue. Maybe I am, you know, my opinion or my thought was not completely right. So which other approach is there into it? So this initial part of self-awareness, I'm being aware about how we react, uh, especially in the stressing moments, as I was saying a while ago, I think it becomes very relevant because, uh, I don't know for you, but for me, it's just I cannot avoid <laughs> falling into that trap now and then. But as you were saying, the self-awareness part becomes here a huge ally to avoid going to, uh, to the other side of the conflict, which is not so, so positive. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this actually also calls, brings my attention to a caveat that I'll put in here. So when I talk about leadership levels, uh, which mm -hmm. is the terminology that Bill Joyner uses, um, I think it's actually more useful to think of them as overlapping systems that we add to as we continue to mature. Uh, and so each of us has access to other ways of thinking in any given uh, time frame. And so we might, uh, we might be called back to earlier ways and more reactive ways of thinking <laughs> by uh, a, a particular situation. Uh, and then yeah, to the extent that we've developed self-awareness, we can in the moment, as you say, say, oh, I'm being triggered. And that could influence this conversation and this conversation is important to our overall ability to collaborate and transform together and so to figure out you know, what route to make take forward from there trying to be very concrete now for the last part of the interview some of our audience may not be very familiar with some of the tools we have been mentioning like retrospective kanban fist to five etc etc could be you know could you give an example about how feedback what we have been discussing uh, would play into practice sure okay well one thing that i mentioned earlier was norm kurtz's retrospective prime directive and that's kind of a, a mantra for the beginning of a retrospective and it goes like this Regardless of what we discover, we understand and truly believe that everyone did the best job they could, given what they knew at the time, their skills and abilities, the resources available, and the situation at hand. So that's the retrospective prime directive that we will often begin a retrospective with, and that sort of sets the stage that this isn't about assigning blame, this isn't about uh, figuring out who's wrong. This is what fig about figuring out what's wrong with the system or our process, or maybe even not what's wrong. Maybe even that's too strong to figure out what we can change that we hypothesize will help us in our next iteration, which is often just a two-week period. What experiment can we run to make things work better? Uh, and so that's a repeated technique that that builds in this idea that we want to regularly pause, look at what we're doing, say what went well, what didn't go well, and figure out what we might do differently next time. Uh, and that builds in this idea of responding to change, to taking in feedback about what actually happened and how well it matched to what we intended. Uh, and so that's one feedback technique built in there. Uh, you mentioned fist to five. That's that's another one for making sure that we extract the all the appropriate information from whatever situation. 
So I very often use that in release planning when we're doing some planning on a slightly longer time frame than our usual iterations, which is two weeks, maybe we're looking at three months and we've put together a plan and then everybody at the same time gives their level of confidence in the plan from 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 a fist, which is zero, or one finger, uh, the index finger, uh, all the way up to uh, uh, five uh, of complete confidence. And the idea there is some solidarity in the production of the plan, that if you give the plan a three, four, or five, that you are saying you support it. And that if someone who wasn't involved in the planning comes up to you and says, you know, hey, this plan was terrible, uh, you say, <laughs> I, I was there, uh, we considered all the factors, uh, and I have confidence in the plan. And what this does then is um, hopefully set the frame for limiting the divisiveness and, and sharing the responsibility for whatever collaborative plan we put through. Putting up the number simultaneously makes the sort of um, uh, opinion influencers in the room less relevant uh, because mm -hmm. it requires each person to come up with their own opinion in the moment. And so somebody who has information that others don't or sees a problem that others don't then uh, has the opportunity to you know, put up a number that indicates low confidence in the plan. And then in generally, if there are any zeros, ones, or twos, we will figure out how to adjust the plan to uh, incorporate the information that that person has that makes them not confident in the plan. So that's a way of extracting all of the information between uh, from the people present and incorporating it collaboratively into the overall plan. And so that is a form of feedback to the group at large about something they might have missed or over overlooked or not weighed as importantly as the, the the person with the low vote. So those are examples of the of the techniques that we use to uh, bring out the information that we need to feedback um, and uh, to adjust to in order to get the best result possible. Before we finish with the interview today, let me ask you one core thing that I believe that most of the teams are facing. And that's how we then hold to commitment and accountability to those decisions that the team made at the end of those examples you have been mentioning using those tools. Which tips would you give to those listening to us that wants to enhance the level of commitment and accountability within the team after those decisions have been made? Well, this is why I emphasize the role of leadership in mm. creating the environment around the team. So it really is only going to work if leadership is holding the entire team accountable okay. uh, and doesn't let the team get away with you know, blaming the testers because uh, for you know they didn't get the testing done or something, but instead uh, holding the entire team accountable for results. Uh, in the case where you've got uh, a team that's working collaboratively, you know, a small team that can work together well, so. The leadership mindset is what frames how the team can perform and how the team is held to account. And so that's that's why I think it's pretty important to work with leaders. The, the piece of advice though that I would give about this is that uh, development, leadership development, organizational development takes a long time. And so not to expect immediate results and in fact to set 
some intermediate targets for what you're trying to achieve within an organization. So I encourage people to set intermediate goals on the way to agility. The Agile community has borrowed a lot of the language from the learning organization movement that happened in the 90s with Peter Senge and Chris Argeris and, and others. This idea of what an organization can look like if it's functioning well and incorporating new information. That's right. But getting to that stage of an organization uh, takes a long time and leadership development takes years. Uh, I've seen some studies that estimate that the levels that I was talking about earlier uh, in Bill Joyner's um, terminology, um, see some research by Suzanne Cook-Grader that, uh, or some reference to re some research in Suzanne Cook-Grader that says it can take five years to move to a new level if circumstances are favorable and the person is open to change. And uh, if you like really focused on the leadership and organizational development, it could take minimally a year to shift. Uh, and so most people don't have that length of time in perspective when they're looking at the changes that Agile requires in their organization. And so I, I strongly encourage people to set shorter term goals on the way to agility so that uh, they don't become discouraged with just how long it takes for <laughs> people to mature and organizations to mature. Patience, it's another another skill that I think that we all have to develop, especially on nowadays environment where results are expected to be achieved so fast. Maybe the actual COVID situation has been also helping us to slow down a bit and bring that level of consciousness. I wouldn't call it spirituality, but that level of introspection in companies as well about what growth does actually mean and how can we experience more of it in a more sustainable way. And William, like, I don't want to take more time over your agenda, but actually I took a lot of notes and I think that it would, uh, it would be worth to have a follow-up chapter with you or a couple of them because uh, you also gave me a lot of ideas and I was here as you were talking, taking a lot of notes as I'm sure that a lot of our listeners will be doing as well. So uh, if it's okay for you, it would be awesome to have you again in our show. I know that you are a busy person, so for today, I will let you go. Uh, I highly appreciate the time you have dedicated to answer to all my questions. And just nothing else, you know, thanks a lot for your time, William. Highly appreciate it. And just wishing you that you have great success with your upcoming projects. I know that uh, these views that you're sharing with us will add a lot of value to the clients you are working with at the moment. Yes, thank you uh, for the opportunity to talk through, discuss uh, how conscious leadership and organizational change and Agile are all related. Uh, and I look forward to future conversations about these topics. Excellent. So we'll continue with that one in our future chapters. Talk to you soon, William, and thanks again for your time. Thank you. So that was all for today and thank you very much for being a loyal listener. Let us know if there is any topic you would like us to cover down in the space for comments. Have a great rest of the week. Goodbye.